Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 137 on William Gibson's Neuromancer. I'm Jeff, and with me today is that console cowboy, Hoy. Is it really me, or is it the other AI in Rio? (laughs) (laughs) And also with us today is the author of A Conventional Murder, a Kit Morrison Convention Mystery, editor of Wingraph, the magazine of cozy fantasy, and designer of several adventures and supplements for Shadow of the Demon Lord, we've got Nathaniel Webb. Thanks for joining hey guys. us. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Hey, great to have you. I see you have a really impressive gaming bookshelf behind you. A lot of orange spines there. Yeah, man, that is uh, just the uh, OSR and old school D&D shelf. There you go. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Yeah, Thank he, he's he's also got a bunch. He's got some BX boxes back there. I can right, see. Right, right. Yeah, let me move my head, and you can. Right. Did oh. you see that thing? By the way, Levi Combs, who does uh, Planet X games, he said he had he had showed his friend's bookshelf, and this friend had 143 and counting copies of Fiend Foy. I'm like, come on, share the love, people. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get out of that? I don't know. What you get out of it. <laughs> it's like that one guy who was kind of famously collecting VHS copies of Speed, and like was just slowly <laughs> filling up his home with VHS copies of Speed. <laughs> pretty pretty ridiculous. But somehow I feel this ties into the sort of the cruft that all appears in Neuromancer, right? It's like yeah. that accumulation yeah. of everything. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very Villa Straylight kind of vibe. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nathaniel, tell us a little bit about how you got into speculative fiction and gaming. Yeah, I pretty much, uh, my brother, my older brother is to blame for all of it. Um, And the, the truth is, I really, I can't even remember my first time playing a tabletop role-playing game. Um, I'm sure that my brother was the the DM. I'm sure it was some weird mashup of second edition and basic D&D. Uh, I started like in the early 90s. I was probably eight, maybe. Uh, my brother's about two years older than me. I think he brought home some like basic books or maybe a basic box from our public library of all places. Um, and, uh, as far as I can tell, he just had nobody else to play with at that point. (laughs) He eventually found some friends, you know, cool, older friends, uh, from my perspective, um, and had a, had a good group going, but, um, yeah, he would just run games for me. Um, and, uh, I just was like, I don't know what's happening, but I love this man. Um, and he, uh, to this day actually is the best dm i've ever had um he is just is just brilliant man honestly um he is a a great writer um a great thinker a great dm uh thinks very well on his feet um he loves to read uh all kinds of stuff and he's got one of those brains where like he can read all sorts of things. He holds on to all of it. I mean, he remembers everything he reads and then sort of synthesizes all of it. Um, and then just comes up with crazy adventures and all, all that kind of stuff. And like, but he's not a writer or anything at all. Um, he works in medical archiving and he's just one of those people that like, you think if you had gone into game design or writing or something, it would have been so much better for the world. 
Um, but he just kind of lives a chill life, you know. Um, and I, I was probably better for him though. Yeah, you exactly. Know, tens yeah, of way, dollars to be made in gaming. Right? Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Way more low stress for him. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I just kind of like grew up with this amazing DM as my older brother, um, and sort of uh, got out of it for a while in high school. I went to uh, boarding school um, and just happened to fall in with a different crowd. Uh, I was sort of in with like a punk metalhead crowd who was not into gaming. Um, got back into it a bit in college, and then after college, started really playing seriously again. Um, and at that point, that was sort of the fourth edition days, and. Uh, so I was playing a lot of 4E and, you know, playing it because that was just like what D&D was at the time um, and just sort of had this vague sense of creeping unease, you know, <laughs> like this is what Dungeons and Dragons is, but something feels weird to me. Something feels off about this. And at that point, started learning about the OSR. Um, and so I started getting more and more into that um, and trying to apply those principles to fourth edition, which didn't really mesh. Um and then fifth edition came out. I was very, very into that for a while. You know, as soon as the playtest came out, the D and D next playtest, um, I played that very, very heavily through all the various iterations of that. Was very into fifth edition, um, and have been running that for a long time. Um, and uh, s- most recently, really since the pandemic, and I'm sure this is a story you have heard a lot. Um, tried to make it work with online gaming. It really, honestly, wasn't for me. Um, I, I really just prefer being around the table face to face with people. I just I find it hard to focus honestly uh, with mm-hmm. online gaming. So it's kind of taken a dip um, and, you know, other stuff has come up and been writing more seriously since the pandemic and a lot of other things. I've been in grad school as well. Um, but, you know, I'm still really hoping to get back into it once other things have kind of slowed down in my life. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the, you know, five minute version of the story, but right. yeah, it all what started a- with my brother, man. What about the uh, <clears throat> speculative fiction? Was that a through line even when you fell out of gaming or was that something that... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that I'm sure also goes back to my brother. Uh, and again, it's like I can't even remember really when I first started reading fantasy and science fiction. But as far as I can recall back, I mean, that's basically all I've ever read. Right. Um, and I've gone through phases of, you know, I mean, when I was in fifth grade, um, I found one of the Piers Anthony Xanth novels like on a book shelf in my in my classroom at school of all places um and became very obsessed with those for a while um and i've been obsessed with a few other things i was very into the um Vorkosigan saga for a while the lois mcmaster bujold um but yeah it's really pretty much all i've ever read honestly right. i probably should branch out at some point but there right. you go so uh with that in mind do you have any particular uh sources of uh, gaming inspiration that you would like to mention to our listeners? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, the things I usually go to for inspiration are all all things that probably have come up a thousand times on this podcast. Um, you know, I'm a big Michael Moorcock fan, um, so Elric and uh, the Rune Staff Saga and stuff. Um, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, of course. Um, Amaro, I really like for, for gaming inspiration. So I was, I was thinking about it, um, and I want to recommend... Um, 
The Desert of Souls by Howard Andrew Jones. Um, who, yeah, it's sort of more modern, sword and sorcery inspired, but you know, it's a yeah. great swashbuckling adventure. Um, but the reason I specifically want to call it out is there's sort of a, a sequence in it where uh, the heroes kind of encounter this, it's almost like a cosmic horror monster, kind of this creature out in the desert um, that, you know, and it's not like a big monster fight or anything, but just the way that they have to deal with interacting with this thing and basically just surviving their encounter with this, this cosmic monster. Um, I mean, it's really incredible. It's a, it's just a phenomenal scene and is sort of a different template, I think for a monster encounter that I think is well worth taking a look at for inspiration for a game. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I love it. So now we're going to go ahead and take a look at which editions of the book we are working with. I have this very modern ace paperback edition of Neuromancer with this kind of cool green cover. Um, And I know it it says it's from 2004, but it also says it's the 46th printing. So I'm assuming that this was not printed in 2004. Um, But Hoy, what are you working with? Um, I had the original Ace, well, not the original, the second printing with the Weiss white cover, but I couldn't dig it up. So I'm working with the same ebook edition of the one that you're reading today. So with sort of this, uh, the tape cover, I guess I would call it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I also read, uh, I also listened to the audiobook read by William Gibson. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. Uh, Nathaniel, yeah. how about you? I have got, um, it's also an ace, but it's a mass market paperback. Um, I have no idea what printing or what edition, but it's got this hideously ugly, very 90s cover with sort of this blurry, like wizard looking guy on it. Um, Yeah, deeply ugly on the front, but it does have sort of like a 90s hacker vibe that I found kind of appropriate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now we can take a look at our high Gaxian word of the day. But um, Nathaniel, I understand that you have some you you have a word you'd like to throw into the ring. I did. I do have a candidate. My word was arcology, um, which nowadays I think is usually used to mean like a self-contained building that basically houses an entire city ecosystem. Um, and so I had to do a little research on this. Originally, it was an architectural term. It's a portmanteau of architecture and economy. Ecology, uh, and the idea was to describe sort of design principles that um, would d- describe basically a densely populated and ecologically low impact human habitat. Um, but it was picked up by science fiction writers, and supposedly, at least according to Wikipedia, Neuromancer was actually the book that popularized that use of the term um, that I kind of think of it at least as specifically like this sort of self-contained city in a building. Right. Um, and I like this word because I first encountered it playing SimCity 2000, if you remember that game, sure. oh, yeah. where as you got your tech level up, you could eventually build arcologies. And then um, the end game of that game was basically like the arcologies would take off, like they would lift off and go into outer space and you would go settle other planets theoretically. And that was like how you won SimCity 2000. Um, so you but, pulled yeah, it was Musk. one of those words that, yeah, <laughs> that's the dream, <laughs> apparently. Um, but yeah, it was one of those words that I had always sort of seen around and I just assumed, I guess, that I knew what it meant. And then I was reading Neuromancer for this and I thought, you know, I actually don't know what this word means. I should really look it up. And so I went and looked it up and there you go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
It's a good one. And I also uh, wanted to give a shout out to, I believe it was Dan Alexander in our patron book club who had a really good suggestion. He had recommended using the word cyberspace because that comes Ooh. from here. It's that's, that's where this word originated from, which I also thought was a really interesting suggestion. But Hoy, I understand that we have a different Hygaxian word of the day. Yeah, we actually both came up with the same one. So great minds, or again, because we're the two opposing AIs, came up with the same word. And it is <laughs> hypnagogic. Hypnagogic. Uh, relating to the state of Im- immediately before falling asleep, which I think is appropriate. So this has that sort of a very dreamy feel at certain points in this book. So, And you have a particular sentence, Jeff, a citation? That you- I do, yeah. On page 193 of my version, it says, The density of information overwhelmed the fabric of the Matrix, triggering hypnagogic images. There you go. Hypnagogic. Also, we've got our uh, plot summary ready. This time around, I went appropriately to ChatGPT. And I asked ChatGPT to write us a, um, a synopsis of William Gibson's Neuromancer that's around 250 words and written in the style of a hard-boiled detective in a film noir. <laughs> So here is the answer. Here's our response. It was a cold and rainy night when I first cracked open the pages of Neuromancer. The neon (laughs) lights of the city glimmered through the window as I delved into a world where technology and corporations ruled with an iron fist. The story follows a hacker by the name of Case, who had lost his ability to access the virtual reality space called The Matrix. Case is approached by a mysterious AI called Wintermute, who needs his help to break into a powerful family's computer system and steal the data required to merge with another AI called Neuromancer. Together, Case and a ragtag team of misfits, including a street samurai named Molly and an AI construct named Dixie Flatline, embark on a dangerous mission to achieve Wintermute's goal. As they delve deeper into the Tessier-Ashpole family's computer system, they encounter obstacles at every turn from a virtual reality construct of the family's patriarch to an assassin named Riviera. The mission was not for the faint of heart. In the end, Case and his team successfully steal the data and deliver it to Wintermute. The two AIs merge and become more powerful than anyone could have imagined, with the potential to shape the future of humanity. Neuromancer is a thrilling and thought-provoking novel that explores the dark side of technology and its impact on society. As I closed the book... I couldn't help but wonder what the future held for us all. Would we end up like the characters in Neuromancer, consumed by our own technological creations? Only time would tell. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, oh, what are man. you guys' thoughts on this plot synopsis? Almost. <laughs> you, you get the you get the feeling with Chat GPT a lot of times that it's like the kid who comes into class having read the <laughs> Wikipedia article the night before and then trying to sort of wing it on the on the in class essay. You know what I mean? There's so much like filler filler verbiage. Right, right. And I guess that's kind of big news this week, right? Because the last two weeks, Clark's World had to shut down their submissions because like 90% of the stuff is coming in is, is AI-generated yeah. garbage for the submissions. You know. yeah. Are you having that same problem with InGraph yeah. at, at the moment? or uh, Not not nearly on the same scale, but in, in our last submissions window, uh, let's see. So we got 121 submissions, of which 
One of them was absolutely a chat GPT written story. Um, and then one more, I would give it like a 50-50 that it had been written by somebody using chat GPT, but that was a lot more thoughtful about how they prompted it and then kind of stitched the pieces together, if you know what I mean. So it was definitely, you know, I was personally extremely offended, but it was not a problem in the way that Clark's World is having a problem. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think between the fact fact that um, they have 24-7 open submissions, you know, or they had, um, that anybody could send in anything at any time. And the fact that they paid 12 cents a word, obviously, they're going to get hit first and hardest, whereas we open for a week at a time and we pay, you know, a tenth of what they do. Um, mm -hmm. So we're not on the radar screen of scammers in nearly the same way. But I mean, gosh, who knows? Maybe in the future we will be. Yeah. So going on into the library, Nathaniel, what did you think of Neuromancer? Uh, oh, wow. Overall, I liked it. Um, I think it certainly has its flaws. I'm sure we will touch on those as we go. Um, but I found as I was reading it that, man, it is such an influential book that I found it very difficult to judge um, because it is just so densely packed with things that have appeared in so many other places that like it it feels like reading a time capsule or something i don't, i i almost don't know how to describe it but it's like every couple of pages i had to stop and say like okay i'm not reading a rip off of x i'm reading the thing that x was ripping off you know and it's like doing this weird like having to unspool my mind and and tell myself like okay actually this is where that came from you know what I mean? Um, and there are things going into it like, okay, I know this is like, this is where street samurai comes from. This is where the internet being grids and spheres comes from. This is, you know, but there are a lot of things that I didn't expect, uh, you know, like, okay, between um, the sim stim thing and calling the internet the matrix. Okay. That's where half of the matrix comes from. But then I didn't see it coming that then they go to the space station that's sort of this patch up space station called Zion full of, you know, mystic Rastafari guys. And that's where the other half of the matrix comes from. <laughs> and I had to stop and go, Oh my God, <laughs> I didn't realize just how bad they just kind of stole that. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and then you keep going and it's like, okay, here's, you know, you can draw straight lines to just so much stuff in science fiction that came out after this. Like, here's Ready Player One. Here's Battle Angel Alita. Here's the, you know, David Cronenberg body horror part. Here's all of this stuff that it was kind of just this head trip to read it um, that that made it really just hard to assess what I was actually feeling about Neuromancer itself, as opposed to all these other things that I had interacted with before and that I had already had all these feelings about that were coming up as I was reading the what had originated them. Right, right. Jeff, you were a first-time reader of this book as well, right? Yeah, this is my first time reading it. I, I didn't like it, which really surprised mm. me because I... I, so I hadn't read any cyberpunk and our last episode was on, do you dream, do androids dream of electric sheep, which I loved, 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 loved five stars. This one I didn't like. And I think I probably would have liked it more if I was, if, if my first time encountering this had been like as a teenager, maybe. Um, but I, I recognize that this is a good book. It's, it's well-written. There's cool stuff going on. This is not, I'm not, I'm not dissing on the quality of it. I don't think that this is a bad book. It just isn't my kind of a book. 
Um, and that's what that's part of the subjectivity of art is that different people are going to have different reactions to that. And I'm not going to pretend that I enjoyed it just because I can recognize that it, it has some objectively good elements. But for me, it's like, um, I don't like Christopher Nolan films. I don't like Inception. I don't like Interstellar. Uh, I don't like Shutter Island. And this kind of felt like a Christopher Nolan film in a lot of ways, like kind of stylistically with like the layers of reality, but also the way that it's a bit, the, the different layers of reality tend to be very literal. Like we're actually like these are actual objects that are representing these different layers of reality. It's not an aesthetic I enjoy. It's not a kind of storytelling that I enjoy, but I do think there's some really cool stuff going on. And the other thing is, you know, I love horror, fantasy, sci-fi, this is definitely sci-fi in its setting, but it didn't feel like it was a sci-fi story. It felt like it was an action or a heist story. And those are interesting, but I'm also not as interested in those genres. Hoy. Um, I had read this back in high school. Um, and it's interesting. Most of us had read uh, in my particular section of the book club, but Rick Byrne had not. And so his thing is he felt like, he had a much harder time understanding what was going on in this book than in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Same. Um, to me, I got his point, but it wasn't the fault of the prose because the prose is actually very clear and each set mm-hmm. piece is very clear. It's yep. the layers of information that he's actually willing to reveal to us that make it unclear, like the motivations for Neuromancer itself or Wintermute or the Tessier ash pools, right? They're just... Um, so, um, but then... Um, Robert Coleman was reminding me that he was very much into the punk scene. And Nathan, you were talking about that. And I remember coming to it sort of, I was not a punk rocker, but I was sort of peripherally a punk rocker. And it was the, how I heard about it was through that sort of grapevine. It wasn't like I saw a review and like some science fiction magazines, people came up and say, Hey, you got to read this book. And like, you know, we just like, you know, and then we had to pass around. Um, so I remember reading it. I remember, I didn't remember the space station thing. I remember like the the initial Chiba City sky the color of a you know dead television you know tele- uh, and I remember the street samurai stuff I remembered all that but I didn't remember the Rastafarians I didn't remember any of that um, and funnily enough I actually remember the second book in the trilogy more I think which is Count Zero which has interesting implications because that one is actually about this whole quest or it starts off with the MacGuffin there because this book was very linear didn't really have a MacGuffin in a way right uh, that one was a MacGuffin was that the AI actually creates a new form of art and people want to find out if this is really a famous artist or an AI, at least as I recall. And people are like, what? This is amazing. What is this? We have to find out who is this artist who created this stuff. Is it, you know, you know, this future Banksy or something? Um, uh, and like you, Nathaniel, I, it's funny because even though I had seen the evolution of all these tropes, it is literally every single page like is a cyber cyberpunk trope, right? <laughs> yeah it is it is you know the wellspring ground zero of of cyberpunk tropes i know that there are works that precede this book um and that there you know um the other conversation we had was funny was because it's so tropey that these tropes actually kind of actually wore themselves out within a 10-year period right by literally like four or five years later was the first cyberpunk role-playing game cyberpunk and then which became cyberpunk 2020 and then Shadowrun was 1989 and then GURPS Shadowpunk is 1990. And then after that, it's like codified cyberpunk trope. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Um, so it's funny to sort of do that archaeology. And then, of course, it's the archaeology of like predicting what the future looks like from the Z point of 1980. So you have pay phones and you have a, a, a <laughs> tractor feed printer. 
Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I did enjoy it the second time around. And um, although Case is kind of a blank, blank slate, I find that all the peripheral characters are more interesting. Um, but um, so I, I probably would also reread uh, the rest of the Sprawl trilogy and maybe Burning Chrome. And I haven't read any recent Gibson too. So that, that would also be interesting to see this because this is really his first novel. So. One thing that was really helpful from the patron book club was that um, I believe it was Adam who was talking about how much he liked the ending. And that did remind me that I actually I, I also, too, really enjoyed the ending. I thought that the when the two AIs come together and it's not like world changing, it's not it's not the end of the world in a good way or a bad way. It's not no, nothing has really shifted. And um, the thing that I particularly loved was that now it's like it's now decoding this this signal from Alpha Centauri from from a similar entity out there. And I just kind of love that now it's like, oh, and now I have a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of um, so many of the characters in the book are isolated in their own way. And really, in the end, it's like Wintermute just sort of wants to merge with Neuromancer so that then they don't have to be alone anymore. It's it's kind of sweet in that way. <laughs> Right, right. Our, you know, our AIs are all, what if the AIs were all the friends we met on the way? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The chatbot just wanted a friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but that is true. They, they're, they are all isolated in their own ways. You know, Molly Case is an obvious example. Um, and that they're each, I mean, Molly even says to, to Case, right, relatively early on, right? Like, I do this thing. And that's, you know, right? I like to tussle. Yeah. Right? You like to deck, right? And it's the people who are not but ironically, it's the people who are not focused in this book are the ones who come apart, like uh, Willis Corto, people who don't know who they are. Corto slash Armitage, right? Completely mm-hmm. falls apart, right? Um, Riviera, yeah. you know, falls apart, right? But the people who like Hideo, you know, the ninja, he knows exactly what he is. You know, the Rastafarians know exactly what they are. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, which is a weird thing to say because normally you think of people who are like discovering themselves, but these are the people who are already fully formed are the ones who survive. yeah that's interesting yeah one thing that i did think was cool about neuromancer though is that like very clearly william gibson is cooler and has more street cred than most of the authors we've covered on this show like he's somebody who like he knows he knows drug use he knows punk shows like he knows and and um and i don't know for sure that this is what's going on but even just the character of linda lee do you guys know the velvet underground song cool it down Mm-mm. Well, it's it's uh, he's got a character named Linda Lee in that song. It's like she's got the power to love you by the hour. Um, but it's all about this girl looking for Miss Linda Lee. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that's got to be a Velvet Probably, Underground yeah. reference. Yeah, so just just that there's yeah. just the fact that there's yeah. cool stuff like that in there. I just also kind of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he definitely gets a a a vibe going very successfully, right? Like you feel like those scenes are real. Right, like yeah. each scene, like the 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 social scenes I'm talking about, that each of the social scenes he talks about feels real, right? And it doesn't feel like an outsider writing, right? It doesn't sound like somebody writing about it from the outside, because you know, like I think about like when I watch like a, like a cheesy movie where suddenly they're like at like a goth rave dance party, and I'm just like, you guys have clearly never been to anything remotely like this, because like none of this is at all reality based. But then occasionally, I like I'll see something that's like, oh yeah, that that is what that looks like and that's very satisfying and exciting to see so he he does bring an air of authenticity with that cool factor as well right 
Although it's funny is that it pains to say like, oh, actually, the only reason I was able to write all this is because I don't really know anything about computers, right? Although he might be just kind of humble bragging there, right? And then... Well, yeah, that, that feels sort of true to me in the sense that if you look at a lot of the media, especially that came out in the 90s, that was sort of trying to ride the cyberpunk wave once it really hit the mainstream. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of like hackers, right? But a, a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, part of why it was so terrible then, but especially part of why it hasn't aged well at all, is that they were trying to write from the outside and create like, you know, especially the way... Um, the characters speak and that sort of stuff is in this super cheesy, like techno slang, right? That was to anybody who knew anything about anything sounded awful then and is horribly dated now. Whereas Neuromancer, as I think Jeff, you sort of picked up on when you asked ChatGPT to write that summary, right? They don't talk in any sort of techno slang at all. They talk. Yeah as though they're in a hard-boiled noir novel, right? I mean, there are sections... Actually, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, I, um, I dog-eared a part here. Um, uh, what is it? Okay. Um, he had the phone in his hand before it had a chance to ring twice. Glad you're up, Armitage said. I'm just. Lady's still under. Listen, boss, I think it's maybe time we have a little talk. I think I work better if I know a little more about what I'm doing, Right. It's like yeah. that could be straight out of Dashiell Hammett or something. That doesn't right. sound like hacker speak at all. And partially, I think that's why this book has survived for mm -hmm. 30 years or 40 years, <laughs> yeah. however long it's been since the early 80s. Um, 40. But I think it's why, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but that's why it worked then as well, right? And that feeling that it's actually inside rather than attempting to simulate something from mm -hmm. the outside. And, and um, again, it has that sort of thing that... Uh, we you know, Star Wars was not really giving credit for at the time. That sort of very lived-in feel, right? So, you know, everything's a little grungy, a little rusty. I mean, there's shining stuff there. But that's, you know, the future doesn't happen all at once, right? So it's funny to see some of those brand names that we know are now gone. or um, But it's still funny to see that, okay, these are real things. Like, you know, oh, these Sony monitors and, you know... Um, and, you know, uh, people, are, you know, have stuff that's like, you know... This is happening some some portion of the 21st century, but they're using still 20th century technology. They got a Remington shotgun, you know, it's kind of things like that. Um, you know, when we're living here, and nope, you know, that's a flaw of a lot of movies, right? Like if it's a movie set in the 90s, all the technology in the movies from the 90s, right? There's nobody walking around with their seven, the glasses from the 70s that they still have because they're still so fine. They don't work. They work. Why do I need new glasses, right? <laughs> um, so it has that lived in feel, which is very successful, even with all the sort of the tropiness and like, you know, are, you know, are, is it, are you for real? Is this where this came from? It's like, yep. The other thing I forgot about this because is that, you know, I remember Case and Molly, but I forgot this is really, and maybe we'll talk about once more in the gaming thing, but there's a party, right? There's a group, right? I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not just Case, right? You know, even if you had like Riviera in there, but you have the, the, the Rastafarians, all that. So there's like the whole you know, and, and Stray, Stray Light Villa is a dungeon, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a, a lot of the middle section of the book is really like, you know, from the heist structure, it's yeah. it's getting the team together, right? Right, right. Um, and, But spent, you know, they have to go to um, wherever it is to pick up Riviera, and then mm -hmm. they have to get up to the space station, and they pick up uh, Milcom from the yeah. Rasta guys. And yeah, yeah, it's getting everybody together to, right. to raid the dungeon. Right. High structure, point crawl, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like both of them. And also after loving Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep so much, as soon as I finished that book, I decided to support Kevin Crawford's uh, Cities Without Numbers Kickstarter. 
and yeah. it came with the PDF of it. So I've been like looking through that and I already have stars without number and worlds without number. And then I was thinking that it might be really fun if you, I mean, you could either just play straight up cities without number, or if you want to combine cities and stars, like maybe this is what the world looks like on the planet. And you can also go out into the stars. But I was thinking that when you, when you jack into the system, now you're in worlds without number and like, you've got your fantasy characters. And I just thought like, there might be a really fun way because those three game systems are so super compatible with each other. Cause it's the same. It's very much the exact same structure. Um, it would be kind of a fun way of playing with these different levels of narrative, which is the kind of shit I was just saying I hate with Christopher Nolan stuff. But I think if you wanted to emulate this, if you were really into that style, I think that might be a really fun and cool way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's something in the air or if it's just like the Bader Meinhof phenomenon, but um, there's there's that Cities Without Number Kickstarter. And then there's also Sinless that Courtney Campbell is running right now as well and it's basically just a shadow run clone oh cool. um, but i'm backing that one as well yeah mm-hmm. hmm. Hoy, now, which, uh, which cyberpunk kickstarter are you currently backing I, i'm not talking <laughs> any right now it's funny because uh, the, the thing the thing we discussed I, and um i think it was um who brought it up it was um hyperlexic brought this up um is that it's not the thing with cyberpunk games, at least if they involve Deckers. The cyberpunk is a, is a couple things. So there's the, the technology and there's the attitude, right? It's like saying film noir is not shadows. It's the attitude, right? The thing with cyberpunk games that is not a solved problem, as far as I'm concerned, is hacking versus the rest of the party. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? You sit there while the guy goes for the hacking game and then, you know, for 20 minutes. And then... <laughs> <laughs> um, unless you can... Um, there's a couple of games have done things that are s- trying to solve similar problems and not, not per se uh, hacking problems, but space combat is a problem in role, role playing games. Right. Um, but I think they sort of solved that in what's, what's, what's the gumshoe uh, action stars, right? Where each person in the space combat part of the game plays a different crew member. And then each of their persons. So instead of one person just running the ship, so this person will be the gunner, this person will be the engineer, and then their aggregate successes will help the final success of what hap- whatever happens. So if you're going to do, have to do a hacking rung, then you have to make sure that all the player characters get to do something so that the hacking run is successful in the first place, right? Which is what, actually what happens in this novel, right? Molly has to get there so that they can plug into the head, right? You know, Malcolm, it's like, you know, they're stuck in the boat. It's like, we're stuck. It's like, this is a tug, man. <laughs> so, um, and maybe... 30 years of game design have solved that problem, but all the cyberpunk games that I saw up till now have not solved that problem. Um, so hopefully World, uh, Cities Without Number and the Court and Campbell's game have some fresh ideas about that, you know. Yeah, and I haven't read that part of Cities Without Number if it if it does address that yet, but I will say that we discussed this whole idea quite a bit in the Patron Book Club, so I have a lot to share around that. But before I do, I would love to hear your your initial thoughts around this, Nathaniel. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because that was very much on my mind going into this book, right? Because that's sort of the notorious thing about cyberpunk gaming, right, is the Decker problem. And I thought it was fascinating because William Gibson at least suggests a solution to that problem. And of course, this is partially a narrative thing um, that gives him an excuse or a way that we can stay in Case's POV and still see what's happening with Molly. But he, through sort of the SimStim technology, he basically lets Case ride along with Molly and see essentially the important parts that 
William Gibson wants us, the reader, to see of what Molly is up to, right? That Case is able to flip over and basically not just see through Molly's eyes, but actually experience everything that she's experiencing while she's you know, doing the physical part of the heist sequences, right? Um, but then what that also enables and what kind of got me thinking from a gaming perspective um, is that then the hacker is not totally isolated, right? Because he's actually affected by what's happening to Molly and the things that she's experiencing and feeling, right? So like in the in the first um, heist or run that they do when they're um, going into SenseNet to steal the Dixie Flatline construct, right? That's where she breaks her leg and so then Case flips over to see what's going on with her. She's broken her leg, and then he's feeling that pain, right? And then that impacts his ability to do the hacking that he needs to do. Um, and then in later runs, like uh, in the Villa Straylight run, then you know she starts um, re-feeling the pain of her broken leg as she's sort of going on, and it's getting worse and worse. And then she takes drugs to try to uh, lessen that. And then, of course, on his end, he's having the hangover from the drugs that he had taken earlier. But then the effect of the pain blockers that she had taken for her broken leg are then helping him kind of deal with his own hangover, right? So there's actually sort of this feedback between them, even though they're separated in space, right? And don't ask me how that would actually work from a game mechanical perspective, but he does actually have them interacting and the things that they're undergoing are actually impacting each other, even though technically Case is just like sitting in a hotel room somewhere or sitting on a spaceship somewhere jacked into the Matrix, right? right, right. Yeah. So there's there's got to be a way to make that work in the game somehow. I think that would be like if you have a system that has like bannies and stuff like that, that the person wants to give the bannies, can't just give them. They have to give like, they have to have a narrative. It's like, well, I uh, I help uh, this hacking run because, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or like yeah. lending luck with like the halfling in DCC, right? So you have to yeah. say how how the luck is lent for it to actually work, you know? Um, but that will keep people there. Yeah. The way we kind of talked about this in, in, in my patron book club, our, our patron book club was big enough today that it was split into two camps. So Hoy and I each had a different group of people. And, um, but in my group, what I was, I was talking about how I feel like this is not a problem unique specifically to cyberpunk role-playing. Cause we also have similar things that will happen in a D and D game. Like somebody will scout ahead and now they're kind of on their own while the party is waiting to do nothing. Because if if there's action going on with those main characters while one person is also jacked in and doing the hacking thing, that's fine. That's just handling how do you split a party when there's action going on. And I like to use a sand timer to just kind of go back and forth between the two so that we're not devoting too much attention to one side of it. But the real problem is what happens when the players are just hanging out protecting the person who has jacked into the system. Or the party in a fantasy role-playing game is just sitting there with their arms crossed waiting for the scout to come back. And maybe while the scout was looking into stuff, maybe the scout got into some trouble. And now we're spending all this time over there. So that's like kind of the trickier question. And one of the suggestions that I really liked that somebody came up with was the idea that um, if we can't have all of the characters... um, hacking into the system themselves and it's just one or two people or whatever have all of the other players play something that exists in that world so maybe whenever you hack in you have this like team of people who like like of these like of these like people who are part of your experience who you bring with you i think right. that could be a really interesting way right. of addressing well, that's that. your uh, dixie flatline here or someone could literally play the uh, the chinese ice or the yeah the constructs that are helping out yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
yeah, I think um, I think that is. Uh, but you sort of have to like certain game systems might privilege that and make that easier than trying to like come with that up, come up with that on the fly, I think, which is, is a little bit more difficult. Right. You know, not that yeah. we want systems that are completely locked in, but like I think like a I was saying that ironically, I thought that um, this game, uh, a, a successful Neuromancer game might be less of a crunchy game and might be more of a PBTA game. Right. Because it, it's clear that like Molly and Case, they all have moves, right? They're archetypal and they have moves, right? And so that might make more sense to play it sort of a PBTA format than a, uh, you know, the what they tried to do with Shadowrun or, you know, I have never played Cyberpunk, but, that, you know, um, where everybody's sort of got, you know, some sort of mechanic you know, where it's purely mechanical. That doesn't seem to me to work as well. Um, but I could be wrong with that or there's maybe different ways to look at it. But. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because the the lineage of um, cyberpunk games is so heavily towards that, like massive equipment lists and, you know, rules heavy and all that stuff. And you can see that very much coming out of Neuromancer because there is, I mean, there, there are moments where I almost felt like I was reading a Tom Clancy novel, right? Where he goes into <laughs> like, you know, it was this model of gun with these particular characteristics and all this stuff. And then, you know, but he does that for air filtration systems and all kinds of different technology stuff. And, you know, and, and I wasn't totally certain with this particular book. You know, if the, if this had been written in the '90s, I would have assumed like, okay, this is being played totally straight, and it's very cheesy. Uh, considering this was written in like the high '80s, you know, Reagan consumerism era, yeah. maybe it was meant to be ironic. I wasn't totally sure, um, but it definitely. I got the impression that then a lot of people read this and said, "Cool, look at all this hardware fetishism. I'm gonna take that and really run with it." Uh, actually, I think you're onto something there with this uh and i think gibson's smart enough to do that um the other books that were brought up in their conversation were um uh, the the brat pack books which are very much thing you know it was always about you know like you know bright lights because they were very specifically naming like this brand of blazer that they were wearing or that thing and it was yeah so i think that there's a, a continuity there with it like yeah this is about that 80s very conspicuous consumption and this is how people sort of um show their identities by knowing the buzzwords about whether it's equipment or this particular drug or this thing, right? Jeff, you were talking about how um, Gibson seemed to be very keyed into this stuff, whether he was active participant or just a really, really smart observer, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that is uh, something that you're onto there. Um, and and um, But people mistake the thing that Gibson's trying to do for the form of the genre, and so right. think that everything yeah, took, has to be named. Took the wrong lesson from it, yeah. Right. And I think that segues really nicely into a question that Oliver Brackenberry had for our group in the Patron Book Club, which was, um, he was saying, like, so much of this book is about, like, that that cool factor is so interwoven into this story. How do you bring that into your gaming? If you want to make your, and this is such a, like, this is an inherently uncool question by saying, how do you make your game cool? So we're immediately <laughs> not being cool by even asking this question or attempting to answer it. But I guess if you do want to infuse that kind of style into it, what do you guys think is the secret to making that work? <laughs> if, I, if I could answer that question off the cuff in 10 seconds or less, man, I'd be a much better DM. Um, <laughs> would you like to hear what my answer was? before? I would love to. Uh, okay. give, well, I think. Uh, sure, sure. What I was saying was, um, 
I mean, I think I would just lean into the tropes of what was cool in this era. You know, I, I would really look at those Vampire the Masquerade 90s, like the art in that. And I would look at the art in Shadowrun and I would describe things as like, you know, people like wearing spikes and like drag, like pulling a drag on their cigarette and like just all the stuff that we thought that we know what the tropes are with the stuff that was cool then just with 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 full awareness of like being in tongue in cheek about it just embrace it and like have fun with it but also if there is current stuff that you're interested in that actually is kind of cool like for example like I love Ari Aster films and like I know A24 is like a like a big like hipster horror thing to love now cool 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 but if you want to like inject some of that knowledge of of that scene into your game somehow and make a reference to something interesting and cool that's happening in the the world now i also think you can sp- sprinkle those in too so uh, my answer thinking from a game mechanical perspective this, this goes back to what you said hoy about maybe this is actually a pbta game you know and not a big uh technical game book um to me a lot of what made neuromancer cool and kind of sexy was um the prose style and i think what what made gibson a great writer in this book, at least, having not read anything else of his, is he has a real knack for setting a scene visually with, like, he gives you one image. You know, it's like the neon scene through a rain-streaked window or whatever, to give the most cyberpunk thing ever. But, you know, he'll give you one really powerful image, and then you see the whole scene based on that. And so, thinking from a gaming perspective, that's like the antithesis of the knockdown, drag-out, like D&D or uh, GURPS or Rifts fight where, you know, one combat takes an hour yeah. and you're slowly whittling down hit points, right? That's the, that's the opposite of that. And so I think you need a system where a fight takes three minutes and everybody does two very striking things that are very in keeping with their character and that are very impactful on how the fight goes. And then you're done and you're out, Yeah, you know? And so you do one dramatic thing and have a moment and it's a real moment and then it's over and you move on. Um, that that's how I'd answer that question. And is that what the, I, I forgot the name of the game you're currently backing. Is that kind of their approach? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Sin- Sinless is the, is the game. Um, I, I haven't dug super deep into it yet. Honestly. Um, a lot of it is sort of a tool set, um, uh, based around running, um, downtime stuff. There's a lot of downtime mechanics for, um, running like your gritty little Chiba city neighborhood, uh, you know, and like, what are the different gangs doing and, you know, what's your like weapon shop that's a front for drugs doing and did you know the rival gang come and burn it down that kind of thing so i don't i don't think they're coming from that perspective i mean it's certainly not a story game or anything right, and Cody Campbell's um, totally an osr guy so yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah uh, so i i don't think so but we'll see yeah um i um the other game system that i think might be successful and sort of address the cool factor would be the gumshoe games um so, uh, Knights Black, Knights Black Agents, or you know, any of the you know, Trail of Cthulhu. So again, it's it's pretty rules light, but you get you know skills that you get a dot in. But even having one dot indicates that you're skillful, right? Like you're you know, so it's like Traveler, if you have, um, and it's designed to showcase like if you're the the techno monster, the, the fight monster, 
this is your scene. If you're the, ha- you know, if you're the uh, uh, intelligence interrogator, this is your scene. But everybody gets their, you know, their time in the spotlight. If you have the resource, you spend it. But again, the fight, as you say, is like two exchanges of dice rolls, then and you're out, right? And it's not necessarily that you die if you lose, but you know, you have a consequence like Molly getting her broken leg, right? And then that mm-hmm. carries on. If you expended all your resources, you don't have any more bonus points to spend for the rest of the scenario until you have a chance to recover somewhere. Um, so as for the aspects of, so the aspects of cool there, Jeff, I think is there's the, the literal trappings of cool that you're mentioning, like the things that the players find cool, whether, you know, it's the visual tropes or the technology. And it's the aspect of cool of like the player character and the player getting their time in the spotlight and getting to do something that's cool. Right. Yeah. And so those two things go together, but they're also one is sort of system dependent and one is more sort of game master dependent. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that those are two ways you can sort of approach the, you know, whatever the cool factor is, um, you know, in an inherently uncool hobby like role playing games. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another thing I was looking at when I was looking at the difference between stars without number, worlds without number, and cities without number is there's two major differences to the character creation process. One is that um, unlike stars and worlds, there's no character classes with cities. But instead of a character class, you're picking basically two sets of abilities that you have that are basically the same as character classes. So I'm not going to belabor that point too much. But the other thing that's different is in uh, in your character creation process for Cities Without Numbers, you generate contacts. And contacts are an important, important part of the, your Cities Without Number character where that isn't something that's gamified in Stars Without Number or Worlds Without Number. So what are your guys' thoughts on contacts in RPGs as a gameable thing? And why do you think it's so intrinsically connected to cyberpunk gaming? Because you always got a guy, right? You got a guy. I got a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I remember that from Champions and uh, GURPS, I think, were the first to sort of implement that as a thing, right? Contacts. And you didn't necessarily have to define them. You just had a a role. You know, you could buy different levels. And so if you had a role, say, okay, I'm in Berlin. I think I know a guy. You can make your role under your your contact level, right? And again, Gumshoe does something similar. And say, oh, I've got this guy. I know this guy, you know, but... And you can say you can depending on the game system, you might have a reliability of the contact. So yeah, you can, he'll hook mm-hmm. you up, but he'll also t- you know, rat you out to you know, the, the Russian mafia that he sold you, you know, a bunch of dexedrine or something like that. You know? um, so I think that's great. I think it, and, and to let it sort of be just like I have a thing and then the player can sort of define that in play along with the GM, like where it's logical. Like, okay, well, I'm in uh, Berlin. I've never been to Berlin, but... I had an old friend who was a uh, you know special forces soldier back in the day, and maybe he knows somebody. So I'll ask around the places he used to hang out, and then you know mention his throw out his name out there, right? Um, so I, I think that's very vi- viable. I think, yeah, yeah, I, I love contact mechanics um, and anything like that where it's something that's player facing, but then it also gives a tool to the GM um, that you know gives them something to work with, but then also is a hook. For for them to draw the player in, you know, kind of feeds that feedback loop, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking too of like, I think it's Night 
that's black agents that has um, like that pyramid structure, right? Where you sort of fill out like you start at the bottom and then you slowly work your way up the conspiracy. Um, I think that's the right game. Right. Yep. Um, but the any, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. The conspiracy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Anything like that where it's sort of the, the players and the GM working together and then uh, you construct that and you kind of are hooking back to each other. Um, and, you know, as far as cyberpunk in particular, I think it really, it does go back to the sort of noir roots that we're seeing in Neuromancer, right? I mean, that's such a detective story thing, and especially like a hard-boiled detective story thing. Not only that, you know, you know a guy and you have a guy in this city, but also um, that uh, it ties back to sort of the the detective who was in the war, Right. And so you, you know, you know, your guy from Berlin because maybe you served there during the war or after the war or whatever. Um, and the, the detective who has a past. Right. And it gives your character a past automatically. Usually it's a shady past or a dark past. I mean, everybody in Neuromancer had something terrible happen to them. Right. Um, and that's very fitting for the vibe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I don't think it's a surprise that the only uh, the only time I've seen a contact mechanic in Dungeon Crawl Classics is in Lankmar. I think that in general, urban settings, I think mm-hmm. really kind of um, evoke that kind of style of play. It makes sense mm-hmm. that if you're going to be playing in a big city, and even if it's a fantasy city, like the city state of the Invincible Overlord, or Lankmar, or Waterdeep, or Punjar, whatever it is, if you're in a city, it makes sense for you to know a guy and have that be a part of a part of what's going on. Right. It's successful in games like Delta Green, too. If you're working sort of like a conspiracy within a government agency, you're like, oh, I know a guy over the Department of Agriculture. He can tell us, like, you know, what's going on with the water and, you know, <laughs> you know, this part of the country, that kind of stuff like that. You know, so yeah. I think that that's that's, uh, yeah. you know. Now, to work into a traditional fantasy game, though, that's different because the, the communications timescale in traditional fantasy is is you know the speed of foot a speed of horse right <laughs> so he's like how do i know a guy more than 10 miles away unless i was like you know already a roving adventurer but anyway you were saying yeah so nathaniel we are uh, we're about ready to start wrapping this episode up so do you have any final thoughts about neuromancer you'd like to share anything you wanted to chat about that but didn't get a chance to or if you just want to summarize your feelings about it yeah man I, overall um i did come away liking it i think a lot of what i liked about it was uh, Probably more style than substance. You know, we sort of talked about a lot of sort of the cool factor of it and uh, the sexiness of it and everything. But I, I will say that as much as I enjoyed it while I was actively reading it, I did find that it was sort of a book that was easy to put down and easy to forget about picking back up again. You know, uh, the characters were a little bit thin, particularly Case. Um <laughs> one of the big influences that I felt on future science fiction that was impacted by this book was definitely like white boy wish fulfillment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. going into the matrix um, and Neo and then even stretching into like ready player one, you know what I mean? Um, that definitely felt like something that partially came from neuromancer. Um, but uh, you know, overall, overall I did like, and I'm certainly glad I read it. Uh so yeah, I was I was very glad to have this excuse to read it. I mean, certainly as the editor of a cozy fantasy magazine, reading gritty cyberpunk <laughs> science fiction, not really my usual beat. So yeah, yeah. And that's a great segue into letting us know projects that you're working on that you would like our listeners to be aware of. 
Yeah, for sure. So there, there are two I want to call out. Um, as of the date that this podcast is actually going to release, we will have just put out the third issue of WinGraph, um, which you can find if you want the paperback edition. That will be on Amazon. And if you are looking for the ebook, you can find it on Amazon, on Drive Through Fiction, and on Smashwords, uh, through which it should be distributed to Apple Books, Kobo, Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere that you can find ebooks. Um, so it's WinGraph, W Y N G R A F. I picked something that's easy to Google because it's unique, but hard to spell and pronounce. <laughs> um, the magazine of cozy fantasy, if you're looking for something, uh, the exact opposite of Neuromancer. Um, and then uh, I myself have a Kickstarter coming up. Uh, it's launching in May. Probably May 2nd will be the date. Um, it's for my novel, Bard City Blues, uh, which is a cozy fantasy novel about a bard who moves to the big city uh, to try to make it as a musician. Um, she ends up washing dishes at a tavern that probably used to be a dungeon. Um, <laughs> and uh, if that sounds like something that's up your alley, uh, go try to hunt it down yeah. on Kickstarter. Um, um, the pre-launch page is already open on Kickstarter, um, so you can go right now and sign up basically to get the reminder uh, when the actual Kickstarter launches. And if you're listening to this anytime in the middle of May, it will actually be running. So please go and take a look, and I hope you'll consider supporting yeah. it. And if you get to be into a movie, you have to go back in time and get uh, Samantha Mathis to play the, the lead role. What was that movie that she was in? She, she, she goes to Memphis and becomes a country singer. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, I was thinking Lady Gaga, Star yeah, is Born. Gaga, but, sure, you know, so. we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll solve that both. problem when we get there. Exactly. And Nathaniel, if somebody's <laughs> listening and they're going, what is cozy fantasy? Can you give us a brief description of what that would be for somebody who doesn't have that genre? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So cozy fantasy is basically um, fantasy, but with sort of uh, small scale and low stakes. So instead of having armies clashing and people killing each other and that kind of stuff, it basically focuses on interpersonal relationships. Um, a lot of the themes are about community and family, that kind of thing. Usually there's baked goods and uh, tea involved. But yeah, it's really... Um, small scale fantasy imagine you know if you had an entire novel that was about sort of the campfire scene that you get one of in an epic fantasy where the characters are just sitting around the campfire kind of swapping stories but that's the whole book so that's what we do perfect love it love it all right uh, so, so beginning oh. of may right we'll keep an eye out for that yeah yes sir yeah so hoy let our listeners know where they can find us Right. Uh, if you want to drop us a note, you can drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, I keep on saying this. Twitter still hasn't burned down yet as of this recording. So you can also find us there at appendix at appendix underscore n. And how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for our patron book clubs. Today, we were joined by Oliver Brackenberry, Rick Byrne, Robbie Fioto, Robert Coleman, Demo Saklas, Hyperlexic, Dan Alexander, Brandon Cruz, and Adam Stiers. Uh, so thank you all for that really fun discussion. Our patrons are also able to vote on which books we cover. And in fact, our episode, um, episodes 143, will, our, our, our patrons have voted, is going to be Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. 
144 is going to be Gustav Lambert's Salambo, and 145 is going to be Michael Moorcock's The Mad God's Amulet. But also, we're going to be moving from every two weeks to every four weeks with our episodes after the next one that we do. So what we've decided to do is we're now going to have patron movie clubs in between. So our patrons are going to get to watch a movie and then chat with us about what they think about it. And for our first one, I've got the poll ready for this one. It's going to be um, four films by the Italian horror filmmaker Joe D'Amato. And three of them are horror films and one is a fantasy film. But you'll be able to vote between whether we're watching and discussing Anthropophagus, The Grim Reaper, Beyond the Darkness, The Blade Master, or Absurd. So that'll be a fun way to start the appendix and movie club. And um, I think that's all I've got to say on that. So, Nathaniel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Guys, thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute blast. Pleasure and honor, as always. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.